0: everyone, and welcome back to the Siemens Additive Manufacturing Podcast. My name is Ashley Ekhoff, and I work for the Additive Manufacturing Program at Siemens Industry Software. We took a little break for the holidays, but we're back in action with the whole new season of discussions with various experts in the additive manufacturing space, sponsored by the Thought Leadership Team here at Siemens. This season, we're going to shift the format just a little bit, and I'd like to walk down a few industry paths so that we can all understand how additive manufacturing is impacting various industries. We'll have our usual mix of uh, Siemens experts, but we'll also be including some industry experts and other voices as we discuss topics relating to additive manufacturing. Today, however, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Dale Tutt. I'll let Dale introduce himself here in a minute, but uh, Dale works on our industry team, and we're going to talk for a couple episodes here uh, with Dale about additive manufacturing in the aerospace and defense industry. So, Dale, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today about how uh, additive is impacting the aerospace industry. Before we dive into our discussion, maybe you wouldn't mind uh, introducing yourself to our listeners, maybe a a brief description of
1: your background and uh, what you do here at Siemens. Hi, Ashley, and I really thank you for having me here today, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. At Siemens, I am the uh, vice president of the aerospace and defense industry, so I lead the industry strategy. I often tell people that I represent the voice of the customer because in my previous roles, I was the Vice President of Engineering and then Program Management at the Spaceship Company, which is part of uh, Virgin Galactic, doing commercial space tourism for Richard Branson. And we were building spaceships to go into space. And before that, I worked at Cessna Aircraft Company or Texron Aviation for quite a few years in a number of engineering and program uh, management leadership roles. Before I left Cessna, I was the uh, Chief Engineer and Program Director for the Texron Airland Scorpion Jet, where we developed a new uh, aircraft in about 23 months. Uh, but I was also the director of engineering for all of the, our Textron Aviation Defense products. And so I've had a number of roles, uh, leading programs, working with engineering teams and developing new products uh, throughout my career. And, and now I bring that experience to Siemens as, as I work uh, within our product teams to develop uh, solutions for our customers as well as our overall industry strategy.
0: That's awesome. I guess I didn't know you were a Virgin Galactic guy. I think they were one of the very first customers I visited to talk about AM way back in the day.
1: Yeah, Absolutely, I know that they were doing some work with engines. Their the rocket motors down. A, it's now Virgin Orbit developing their engine nozzles, so it's pretty cool stuff.
0: Yeah, I think I went to Death Valley. That was the first time I'd ever been there, so that was that was really interesting. <laughs> it was hotter yeah. than blazes. It was like February yes. or something. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. We've talked in previous episodes of this podcast about different use cases for additive manufacturing. Um, I guess we could probably start there. What use cases do you see being used in the aerospace industry? I mean, I I assume that lightweighting would be one of those, but I assume there are probably others.
1: Absolutely. So obviously, I think lightweighting is one of the more obvious uh, examples that, that people think about. Really, you know, getting a much more efficient use of the material. You, you know, we see parts uh, where the weight's being reduced ten, fifteen, sometimes twenty percent, just because you're only putting the material exactly where it needs to be. You're not limited by machine constraints, say a five-axis mill, or by other tooling constraints, and so it's certainly a huge advantage there. I think the ability to get maybe more exotic shapes that are not limited by current tooling or machine constraints. Uh, for example, specialized ducting. In my past lives, we used uh, additive manufacturing for plastic parts, but uh, we were making specialized little ducts that would fit um, up inside the cockpit and next to the windshield. So uh, we were able to produce parts that we couldn't produce otherwise with with traditional tooling. An interesting example that I think we're, we're going to see a lot more of is with developing prototype parts. So for example, when I was working on the Scorpion jet, we, we weren't sure on the shape of the nose on the inlet and we were looking at what it would take to make this part and to make the tooling for doing this deep drawn forming exercise to make it out of aluminum. It's going to be like $1.3 million. And, and we knew that there was likely going to change as we went through the design and flight test process. And so uh, we ended up making it using other methods and it was, it took, you know, like 10 weeks where we could have printed that. In probably just a few weeks if we'd had additive manufacturing available to us. So those are some examples where we see it. Certainly in manufacturing, just making parts, there's a lot of parts that would be easier to make than machining them. Uh, you know, hear about a few companies that are building some pretty large titanium frames in in 100 hours instead of 100 days and repairing parts when you're out in the field to be able to print them. Certainly using them for molds and tooling. So if you can make uh, mold shapes for pressing parts or for uh, composite parts. So there's a lot of possibilities, especially I kind of wonder if there's not opportunities as we get into more specialized materials in the future as well to be able to print those instead of machining them because sometimes those specialized materials become a little bit harder to machine. So definitely a lot of uses and a lot of applications for it in the aerospace and defense industry.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I think uh occasionally when we run into customers in the aerospace industry, we've heard about some of those things as well. So uh that that jives with what I've heard as well. So perfect. One of the aerospace industries we've had lots of uh discussions with are people in the in the space oriented part of aerospace. And I've heard that it can cost upwards of like ten thousand dollars for each pound of weight that you fire into space. So You know, we talked about briefly about lightweighting, and that's something that's really important to them. But is saving weight something that is of similar importance to people in the commercial and military side of aerospace? Uh, Does it get them the same kinds of uh, return on investment just to to make things lighter?
1: Absolutely. I'm actually kind of surprised sometimes that the number is not a little bit higher than $10,000 per pound. I know that many years ago when we were designing rockets and Designing airplanes, we would sometimes throw out around the number of, you know, $5,000 a pound, $10,000 a pound. So, uh, it certainly is that there's a lot of value on a pound of weight. If you're talking about space applications, weight is super critical, especially if you're talking about satellite in the upper stages, because every pound you save is, is a pound of propellant that you can't have to keep the satellite up in space longer or just a pound of capability. But with commercial and military aviation, it's the same thing. You think about one of the stories that came out probably, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. And they were talking about the F-35 where they went through a big weight reduction program. The airplane had gotten a little bit heavy as it went through the design process and they spent a fair amount of time to go back and really whittle away at the weight. That happens on a lot of programs. There a lot of programs that I've been part of, you know, we start talking about every airplane, every pound that you have on the airplane that's above the target weight. Is a pound that can't become payload. So if you plan for the airplane to weigh twenty thousand pounds and it weighs twenty one thousand pounds, that's a thousand pounds less payload that you can carry. So it's very important, very critical. Even then, you know, we still throw out sometimes five thousand dollars a pound, ten thousand dollars a pound. It oftentimes will depend on where it's at. If if you're having a uh, center of gravity problem, say you're getting a little bit tail heavy which happens on a lot of programs, uh, you might be willing to pay 10000 or $20,000 a pound to get the weight out of the tail than you would if it's the weight that's up in the front of the airplane. So it, it's kind of dependent, but I guess the bottom line is, is weight is super important, super critical, and companies are willing to pay a bit of a premium to make sure that they can accurately manage their weight.
0: Yeah, I think I saw, you know, early on and and when additive kind of became a big thing that there were several I guess they were research parts that people like Airbus and Boeing were working on for commercial airlines where, you know, they were printing things like seatbelt brackets. And I saw one that was, I guess, as, as large as a bulkhead. They were using things like topology optimization to try and reduce weight. Now, I haven't I don't know that I've seen any of those become real, but interestingly, I, I think it's something that even in the, the commercial area that they seem to be, uh, you know, kind of taking to heart.
1: The ability, especially when you have these large bulkheads, the machining tolerances can really add up on some of these parts. And so, if you have a lot of the thicknesses of the part are on the order of, say, you know, sixty or seventy thousandths on a big bulkhead or the web, if you're just ten thousandths thick, that can add twenty pounds to the part. So, uh, on these some of these large parts, so whether you're commercial aerospace or defense, everyone's worried about weight and where the material is going and how they're going to manage it.
0: So moving on a little bit, we've seen companies like GE, who, of course, make aircraft engines. They've adopted additive in a real you know, wholesale way by purchasing an AM hardware manufacturer. It seems that they were a pretty large investor early in AM's maturation cycle. In general, how quickly does the aerospace industry adopt new technologies? And has the adoption of additive been you know, faster, slower, or about on par with what you've seen uh, with other technologies in the past?
1: I think that it's being a little bit faster uh, than maybe some of the other technologies in the past, and, and in large part, maybe that's because they've been able to to learn from the lessons of of some of the past experiences. And so, thinking about like composites technology, when they companies really started applying carbon fiber technology and and doing the composite layups, if you go back to say the seventies and nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, there was fairly slow adoption. Whether you were working with the FAA or the DoD agencies there would be knockdown factors. And so you had to add some weight and and because it was a new process and a less understood process than metallic manufacturing, the the adoption was slow and the regulatory authorities would be be a little bit slow to to, to adopt that as well. Mm -hmm. And then you started to see it being applied to a lot of secondary structures first. So these would be applied to these structures that maybe weren't quite as flight critical if you had damage to the part during flight that you wouldn't it wouldn't be a critical failure or a catastrophic failure but mm-hmm. but now here you are in the 2000s we have very widespread adoption so there's new tools for analysis uh, the process simulation just the process controls that we have learning those lessons from how some of the previous technologies have gone it's going faster and i think the adoption is going to be a lot faster
0: excellent so we just talked about the different types of parts that, that might be printed. I, I assume, you know, the certification process or what you have to go through for for different parts are, are probably different. So like a, a non-critical part, like you said, like maybe a, I don't know, a, a little door latch or something might have less stringent certification requirements than, say, you know, a part that's used in the engine or control systems of the aircraft. Am, am I, I assume that's correct from what you
1: said there? Absolutely. So, for example... Oftentimes will depend on the criticality of the loss of the part. So if you have a little fairing or a little door latch or sometimes even a secondary flight control surface. So roll spoilers, we used to consider them secondary because if you lost or if you had damage to the part and you lost the function, you wouldn't necessarily have a critical loss of the aircraft. It, it would be, you know, it would require maintenance when you landed, but, but you wouldn't necessarily have a flight emergency. So. But then when you start thinking about primary structure like wing spars or an aileron or an elevator surface that is the primary flight control surfaces, there's, you know, it's not necessarily that there's a higher standard applied to them, but the loss of the part has a higher effect on the airplane. And that's that's maybe why it gets a little bit different visibility. You, you don't want to, you know, you don't want anything to break on the airplane. But if you do have damage, for example, you have a crack in the part or something, It's easily inspected or the failure of it is not and not flight critical. And so that's usually when it drives different certification requirements and different standard. And so it's a little easier to adopt uh, for uh, new technologies for those parts. And they do sometimes they'll go through different levels of testing and qualification as a result as well. You know, obviously, primary structure like a wing spar you're going to test it a lot because, you know, you want to make sure that it's good. But if it's just a little fairing covering up an antenna, it's not flight critical. And, and, and so it may just go through a cursory testing or maybe even just an analysis.
0: So what, what is the normal process for, you know, adopting a new technology like additive or a new part that's printed with a new technology? I imagine, like we kind of mentioned here, it takes, you know, regulatory agencies and certifications and things like that. Can you kind of walk us maybe
1: through the process? There will be several factors that are involved. Oftentimes, you'll see some industry groups that will help develop some of the processes, and they may even develop standards for testing. And so, if you look at again using uh, an example of like the carbon fiber composites when they were adopted, you know, as as they've been more widely accepted in the industry, you have industry you know standards bodies that that help develop allowables for the material. They also help develop the processes that you can go uh, through to to certify new material systems. And oftentimes the regulators, uh, the regulatory agencies like the FAA or EASA are part of that. So they will go through, for example, a building block process. So you may do uh, testing on small coupon samples, and then you may build components or test components that are representative of the type of structures that you would have on an airplane and then they test those. And then you bring structures together and look at how an assembly reacts. As you go through this process, you're building up allowables throughout the entire process. And you're validating your design methodologies as well as your manufacturing methodologies. So, so you'll see these industry groups that help collaborate on developing new standards, new processes for new, new material systems. And then the regulatory agencies, they do participate in those but then they also set the rulemaking and the guidance, uh, oftentimes working with industries to to help establish uh, the actual regulatory or the certification requirements for those material systems. And so they might issue it if it's a, if it's a new, uh, an especially new technology, they might issue special conditions. Uh, eventually those, uh, you know, they might make their way into normal rulemaking procedures. But uh, as you go through this, you know, certifications you have the rules from the FAA, you have the industry standards, and then you go through these different levels of testing at the component level. You have analysis methods that you have to validate. And so all of those come together. And then you submit that data package to the FAA. And it really right now is, would be on, and, and even with composite technologies, it's often on a per aircraft or per program basis because people are often adopting new material systems. Uh, even today, You know, even though carbon fibers have been around for a long time, there's always you know, there's often some new uh, new resin systems being developed that are a little tougher. They meet different requirements, and so so it's a process that everybody goes through today. And I think as companies and the industry gets used to it, it's it's a rigorous process, but it's it's a fer- it's a fairly well understood process now. So companies know how to plan for it and 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 work their way through the process.
0: Cool. I assume that the the standards bodies and maybe even the regulatory agencies are, are maybe a little different for space defense and and
1: commercial, or, or are they all the same? Sometimes it's oftentimes. You know, I guess my experience has been that they will they will be a little bit industry agnostic uh, as they develop materials. Now, their adoption or their acceptance, they may have to develop specific standards for, say, the space industry because there may be different regulations. So the standard bodies kind of do the same work, but they maybe have different nuances to some of the regulations that they have to, 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 to show requirements for. So, yeah, I, it's kind of the same standard bodies. Oftentimes they'll use the same data, but, but there are circumstances where they have to meet a specific requirement um, for a different agency.
0: So it sounds like it's maybe a, a complicated process, but a known process, which I guess is good. Um, you know, my feeling on these things is uh that they tend to get smoother as more and more uh, companies walk down the various paths here. I think this is a good spot for us to close the discussion for today. So I'd like to thank you, Dale, for taking the time to talk with us. I've really enjoyed talking about additive and aerospace. The good news for everyone is that Dale will be back in our next episode, where we'll be talking about some hurdles to additive adoption in the aero industry, amongst other aerospace-related subjects. Now, if you've missed any of our previous episodes, I encourage you to give them a listen. And of course, we love it when you comment or give us a thumbs up or whatever. So also, if you'd like to engage with Siemens further about additive manufacturing or how AM applies to the aerospace industry, feel free to look me up on LinkedIn or on the Siemens software blog pages where I maintain the additive manufacturing blogs that we post there. Thank you to the Siemens Software Thought Leadership team for sponsoring this podcast. And thank you very much to all of you for listening. I'm Ashley Eckhoff. You've been listening to the Siemens Additive Manufacturing Podcast, and we will see you next time.